the following audio is from a sermon series entitled The Mystery of Marriage. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Well, like I said, we're starting our uh, series on marriage today, and, and you might be wondering, you know, I look like a pretty young guy. Why, where's my credibility come from? I've, I've only been married for maybe six years. Uh, some of you have been married twice as long, three times, four times as long as that. What makes me qualified to stand up here and talk about marriage? And I'm just going to tell you, it's not, it's not my credentials. It's not my personal experience. What makes me qualified to stand up here and preach about marriage this morning is that God has provided us his word, which has quite a bit to say about the topic of marriage. And so we're going to spend seven weeks going through marriage, and we're going to talk about marriage from a biblical perspective Now, the reason why, I think there's three big reasons why we're doing this. First of all, marriage isn't going anywhere. The Bible begins and ends with a wedding, right? God leads Eve down the aisle and presents Eve to Adam. There's the first wedding. And then then Revelation, we hear about this wedding that's coming where Christ and his bride, who is the church, are to be united. And there's a big celebration, a big feast. And as we look through history in every civilization throughout time and space, they've had some concept or some version of marriage. Now, for a good portion of Americans, there's this thought that marriage is becoming obsolete. There's this idea of we can reconstruct marriage in the way that we think is is, is a good fit for us. Uh, in fact, we can see how statistically marriage is down. In 1960, 60% of 18 to 30-year-olds were married. Now, today's statistics tell us that only 20% of 18 to 30-year-olds are married. Not to mention, divorce rate is astronomically high, higher than it's ever been before. And even though the cultural trend is to say, you know, we don't need marriage, we can move away from that, the popularity is declining, marriage is always going to be around. Always. Now, secondly, we think seven weeks is an appropriate fit for talking about marriage because marriage is hard, right? If you have been in a marriage any longer than a honeymoon, sometimes you discover this on your honeymoon, marriage is difficult. It's, it's challenging to share your entire life with another human being. Or you think of the day-to-day struggles or you even think of the big picture struggles, the, the big ideas of how do our lives work together. It's, it's quite challenging. And as common as it is for people who are single to wish to be married, it's equally as common for people who are married to wish that they were single. Because marriage is tough. And if you feel like marriage is tough, you're not alone. And so this series, I hope, will be a way to strengthen our marriages, to make it more enjoyable uh, in our lives. And the third reason we need to to spend time uh, in the topic of marriage from a biblical perspective is because most people don't understand marriage from biblical perspective at all. See, every culture has a tendency to hijack marriage or, or warp it to fit its own ideologies. And because marriage isn't a social construct, it's not a cultural thing that society said, you know, what, what, kind of, what kind of thing can we create to have a man and wife come together? Marriage is invented by God. Right? He, he did that 
in the same breath as he created all things. So God creates marriage. He defines it. He orders it. Yet for most of us, our personal experience or our personal preference shapes our view of marriage and our expectations of marriage instead of Scripture. Now, some people have had experiences, maybe as kids, you've, you've witnessed a terrible marriage. Maybe your parents just constantly fought. You, you saw one or the other struggling with loneliness or, or just being miserable. And so you've seen marriage in that negative light, and, and you think to yourself, you know what, I just want to avoid marriage. Marriage, in my, in my sight, looks like it's really hard. It's not worth it all, so I'm going to sidestep it altogether. Now, others of us have been more fortunate. We've seen our parents have great marriages, or, or so it seems on the outside, right? There, there's not necessarily been visible fighting. And so you think, you know, marriage is pretty awesome. My, my parents seem to get along. This is a good deal. And so she's like, I just can't wait to get in. And it kind of creates this hunger for marriage. And, and in the process of it, it just seems like it's taking forever to find the right spouse. You wonder if you're broken or incomplete or you're doing something wrong, right? If marriage is so awesome, why can't I find the right person to be with? Or maybe you get married and you find marriage just isn't easy as you thought or as you saw. And you wonder, did I even marry the right person? Now, everybody has a filter. Everybody has a filter when it comes to marriage. But only Scripture gives us the correct filter to view marriage through. It helps us understand why God created marriage, what it's for what it's meant to do, what the purpose of marriage is. Scripture tells us what marriage ought to look like, what defines marriage, what makes a marriage a success. So here we are. The next several weeks we're going to be studying uh, primarily Ephesians 5. That's where we're going to sit down here in that verse that Steph read for us today or this passage. And we're going to jump around to other passages as well because Scripture really does have quite a bit to say about marriage but before we get into the particulars, before we get into the nuts and bolts of marriage, we, what we really need to do is zoom out. We've got to get a 30,000-foot view, a big picture of what God is using marriage for. Because marriage is not an end goal. Right? Marriage is not an end goal in itself. It's part of something bigger. It's just a piece of what God is doing. And as we, what we're going to do actually this morning, we're going to survey Ephesians, and what we're going to see is that marriage is a piece of the big picture. And the big picture is that God is renewing all of creation. All things are being renewed for God's glory. And so we're going to, we're going to do that right now. We're just going to survey through the book of Ephesians. We usually preach verse by verse, chapter by chapter through books of the Bible. This marriage series, we're kind of dropping right down in Ephesians 5. And so I'm going to get us caught up uh, and fill you in on what the Apostle Paul has been telling uh, the Ephesian people about and setting up the framework so they can understand what marriage is. So if you have a Bible, you can open it up. There's a Bible in the pew. Uh, there's going to be words up on the screen here. Uh, and we're going to actually start in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 9. The Apostle Paul writes to the Ephesians. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us 
in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the promise of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Okay, now that's kind of like drinking from a fire hose. There's a lot going on here in this passage. Actually, in the Greek, this is all one sentence. It's just one run-on sentence because the Apostle Paul is so fired up about what God has done in the gospel. He's trying to communicate to his people that this is the most the, one of the most theologically dense sentences in Scripture. And so what I want to do, I want to break this down. And I'm getting fired up. I can tell I'm talking fast. I've had a little bit of coffee. Uh, but but let, me, let me work through this here. Apostle Paul starts by saying, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The Apostle Paul is telling us that God is giving us every possible gift, every spiritual blessing for our benefit. That God isn't withholding anything from us. He says that you were chosen to be holy and blameless. What he's talking about here is this radical transformation that the gospel has in our lives. That we, when we come to know who Jesus is, we don't come as saints first. We come as sinners and God transforms us. He makes us into a new creation. That he makes us holy and blameless. He tells us in love. God predestined us to be sons and daughters, meaning that our sinfulness doesn't disqualify us from God's love, that he actually planned to love sinners, that, that in loving sinners, he adopts us into his family. He gives us a new family. He gives us new family dynamics new, within the church, new family rules to live by. He says this is the pray, to the praise of his glorious grace. Now, all of this stuff that God does in our lives is not necessarily for us. It's not about me. What God does in the gospel is about his glory, to the praise of his glorious grace. It's so that God would be loved and, and glorified above all things, that we'd be blessed in the beloved, and God is glorified in that blessing. And he tells us that we had been redeemed and forgiven through the work of Christ. Now, now, Ephesians 1 through 3, the first half of the book, is all about what God has done for us. It, there is no directives. It's not telling us to do anything. It's just laying out what God has done for us in the gospel. And, and these first, you know, verses 3 through 9, lay it out big time. Now the question is, why would God do all of this for us? Why would God so lavishly bless us? And the answer to that is in verse 10. He says, making known to us, this is verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, Here's his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Here it is, to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. 
See, God's plan in doing all this is to unify us, to bring us together with Christ, to, 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 to make us glorious like Christ is glorious. And this plan of uniting all things to Christ in heaven and on earth is in effect right now. It's a plan that's underway. See, God is renewing, he's uh, recreating and uniting all things to himself for his glory and for the good of creation to basically restore things to how they ought to be. And one day, and we sang about it this morning, one day there's going to be a point in time where the work is done. Everything's completed, completely renewed. We are totally and 100% united with Christ. But in this day, God is calling us to partner with him, to take part in this work that he's doing, that we would become united and renewed in Christ and completely restored, working toward that end. Now, this is a big work. You know, we're talking about heaven and earth completely being reshaped, us being renewed, reshaped. And the question is, how does this work Happen? Where does it begin? And, and the answer to this is this work begins with us, this church, our church, the church, capital C, the universal church. If you're a Christian, God is in the process of recreating and restoring you. And Ephesians shed light on what this process looks like. Verse 10 tells us that this process is creation-wide, and then he, then Apostle Paul narrows it down, sort of hones in on the next step. He says, this is a work that is happening through the church in all space and time. Uh, if you look at chapter 3, verses 8 and 10, he says, to me, though I am very, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden in all ages in God who created all things so that through the church, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So he's saying this is a work that's happening in the church. But then he goes in, zooms in a little bit further. It's not just the church at large. It's happening in individuals' lives. The individual Christians are being called and equipped. He goes to, uh, we can jump to chapter 4, verse 7. He says, but the grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And you jump down to, to verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And then Paul, he clarifies, right, this, this he's using transformation language. And usually when we think about transformations, it's, it's usually like external transformation, which we're, we're thinking about. But, but Paul actually tells us this, before this is external transformation, there's something internally happening inside of you. In verse, or chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. 
I'm jumping around a lot here. Hang with me. He says, for this reason, I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he might grant you to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He's saying it's an internal thing before it becomes external. Now once again, he shows us this point, the goal for all this transformation. Why this work is happening in the church and in the individual's life and why it's going on internally before it's externally. He tells us why this is happening in chapter 4 verses 13 through 15. Until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way In him who is the head into Christ. He's saying the point of this all is for us to become like Christ. This is discipleship. We think about it. This is what discipleship means. It means following Jesus to become like him. And and the Apostle Paul is saying the way that God is renewing all the heavens and all the earth, earth starts here with us in following Jesus. Internal transformation made external. And so when we set marriage within the context of this big work that God is doing, marriage isn't just about, you know, saying I'm going to do life with this person forever for the rest of my life. It's, it's much more than that. Scripture gives us new eyes and a refreshed imagination of what it looks like for the world to be restored. And it starts within our own relationships. See, God tells us he's writing a story of redemption. And every believer is, is in the cast playing their God-given part. Now, some of us aren't really aware of this. Right? We're, we're unaware that God has cast us to play a part in, in this huge and glorious story of what God is doing to renew all things. And so he wants to call you into this. He wants to put his grace before you so that would radically shape and reorient your life in a way where his glory is undeniable in your life. And chapter 4 actually talks about what this looks like. There's this talk about um, putting off the old self and and putting on the new self, to living inside of a new identity. Now, this idea of becoming the new self doesn't happen inside of a vacuum. Becoming the new self doesn't happen in a Sunday school classroom, doesn't happen through curriculum. The Apostle Paul shows us in in chapters 4, 5, and 6 that this work of becoming the new person happens within the context of relationship because we are created as relational beings. 
Chapter 4 and chapter 5 talks about the new relationship that you gain with other Christians, right? Now we are adopted into God's family, that, that we have a new family. Ephesians 4.25 says that we are members of one another, right? That, that, that the body of Christ is working in sync. And this is really quite a profound dynamic. Uh, Ephesians 5.21 says, the way that this looks like, this, this, here's what it looks like, is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Right? This, this is what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit of God. This is what it looks like to, to follow Jesus. This is what it looks like to be a Christian. But this doesn't just affect the new relationship that we receive through the church. This has a tremendous impact, a reorienting impact on our existing relationships. Chapter 6 talks about how our parenting relationship, the relationship between parent and child changes, how the relationship between a boss and the employee changes. But the second half of chapter 5 is about marriage. And he's showing us that marriage plays an important role in God's plan for the renewal of all things. And I, I don't think we realize how powerful, what kind of a role marriage plays to this end. In the hand of God, marriage is one of God's most effective tools for making us more like Jesus. Like a skilled woodworker uses a chisel. God uses marriage as the means to reshape our hearts, to reshape our lives, and to give the watching world a picture of what the gospel is all about. Now, as we come to the section in your Bibles marked wives and husbands, there should be a little uh, you know, header text. As we come to this section... It technically starts at verse 22, but really what we need to do is back up to verse 21 because verse 21 functions as a linking sentence between the basics of Christian living within, within Christian community and the dynamics of marriage. Verse 21 says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is really where we're going to spend all of our time this morning. See, just as we submit to one another in reverence for Christ, marriage is mutual submission. You cannot talk about biblical marriage without talking about submission. It's, it's a vital piece of marriage. And unfortunately, that's why so many people flee from this concept of biblical marriage because the idea of submission seems oppressive, It seems restricting. It really goes against our individualistic tendencies within our culture. But when you understand submission correctly, it's not oppressive. It's not restricting. It's life-giving. It's, it's beautiful. It's worship-provoking. And what is submission? Submission is a military use, word that's used 
for giving up your rights. As Paul tells us in Ephesians uh, 5, that we submit to fellow Christians out of reverence, out of fear, out of awe, out of worship, out of love, out of respect or honor for Christ. He's telling us this is a matter of putting the other person above or ahead of yourself. This is one of the reasons why church community seems to be so uh, enjoyable. Why people look at the church community that's functioning the way it ought to be and like, that's really unique. It's because people are loving others. They're putting others ahead of themselves. But this is also that the act of putting someone else above yourself is also what makes marriage so hard. Because it's not just a matter of, you know, when we do community together as a church, right, there, there's a degree of I can put you before me, you know, at the end of the day we go home to our separate houses and then, you know, we can kind of resume how we were. Right, but marriage is I go home and that person's there too. Right? There's this constant need to be putting that other person ahead of yourself. So biblical marriage is this concept of mutual submission. Two people setting aside their own wants, their own desires to do everything in their own power to meet that other person's need. And this really runs uh, in opposition to what the culture historically has talked about marriage. Historically, there, there have been two dominating views on marriage, and these, these titles that I have prescribed are not necessarily super helpful, but, but I hope it sort of summarizes what I'm getting after. There's this ancient view of marriage, and there's this modern view of marriage. The ancient view of marriage, and this is, here's why this is misleading, because the biblical view of marriage is also ancient. Uh, but, but this ancient view, that we sort of think of it in terms of dynastic view of marriage, it's where marriage serves a social function. Now, this used to be common, you know, back in the 1600s. I'm back during the, the, uh, the dynasties of, of England, right? People would get married to, to in order to establish sort of relationships between countries. Uh, and now in the West, it's not, not as common as maybe what it is currently in the East. But it's just concept of getting married for economic or social reasons. In most cases, love isn't a factor. Right? It's purely about getting married for money or prestige or security or out of duty. It's this matter of making a commitment, even though uh, emotionally or, or on the sort of relational level, there's not necessarily that, that bond, but there's, a, there's a, a commitment to this relationship where divorce isn't an option, not because you love that person so much, but because it's better for the society, it's better for the kids to keep this marriage together. So this, this ancient view of marriage has a level of high commitment but low passion. And then there's the modern view of marriage, which is also a terrible name because biblical marriage ought to be modern. But this sort of idea, a modern view of marriage, is where marriage serves to fulfill a personal romance or passion. 
It's this concept that I have needs, I have desires that I want met. And for the moment, you meet those needs for me. Right? We got it hot and heavy. We got a thing going on. There's a connection here. But you know what? Maybe in two years, it, it won't be there. And so I think I'll just move on to the next, find, find the next person that fills me with passion, that meets my needs in that way. And so in this sense, divorce becomes common because our emotions, our, our passions, they change. As romance fizzles out, there's this sense of, uh, of high passion and low commitment. At the foundation of these two options of marriage, there's the same issue. It's saying that the purpose of marriage is about me. It's about meeting my own needs, to be taken care of financially or to feel loved or accepted, to have security or passion. It's a matter of looking at your partner and saying, you meet these certain criterias for me. right? You check these boxes that I need that might be useful in accomplishing my own wants and desires. And the problem with approaching marriage in this way is that it's completely self-centered. Now, when you frame it up like this, uh, when, when passion and lifelong commitment seem mutually exclusive, that has to be one or the other. Nobody wants to have to choose between uh, lifelong commitment or, or, or high passion. And so what's happened in sort of a po postmodern option is, is that uh, in a lot of scenarios, cohabitation has been adopted. Studies show that 50% of couples who are married today live together before they're married. Now, for some people, this is viewed as an alternative to marriage. Right? It's sort of a, um, you know, I don't need a piece of paper to prove that I love you. It's sort of a best of both worlds. We, we don't have all the, the, uh, the rigmarole with getting married. We have this ability to kind of come and go as we want for other people, it's kind of a trial run to see if this is a good choice, if, if our lives will be compatible together. It, it, let's see how this pans out. Cohabitation is where you get the financial benefits of being a couple without having to make that commitment to each other. And then when the romance fizzles out, it's just a matter of bouncing off to the next person, right? No paperwork, no need to file a divorce. Now, these options are too selfish. They're too self-centered to be compatible with God's vision of the Christian life. See, biblical marriage gives us a better option. It's where passion and lifelong commitment, where stability and joy and transformation intersect. Tim Keller, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, says, the purpose of marriage is not to fulfill me socially or to fill me, um, fulfill me emotionally. The purpose of marriage is to serve your spouse with a vision of their future glory. Now, do you remember the story that God is telling? Do you remember what God is doing here? 
Right? The, the point of, of what he's doing is to unite, unite all things to himself, to renew all things, especially our marriage relationships. See, marriage is to say to each other, I see what glorious thing God is doing in you, and I want to be part of it. Marriage isn't about what I want It's not about meeting my needs. It's about what God is doing to transform our spouse into the image of Christ. Now let me ask, is this the way that you think of your marriage? Do do you see marriage as the means for you to step into the work that God is doing to love and to lead your spouse to become more Christ-like? If it's not, then we need to, to, to revision what marriage is to, to get a better understanding about what God is doing through marriage. Now, now, when we see what God is doing and renewing all things, this changes everything in marriage because it, it's not a matter of looking at my spouse and saying, how can you be useful to me? Right? How can I use you to fulfill my desires and, and my wants? How can you be an advantage to me? The question becomes, how can God use me in your life? How can I give my life to serving you? I think one of the reasons why a lot of people have bad marriages is because you're going into it with a self-centered mentality. It's not about giving your life away. It's not about loving the other person into their, to their, uh, who they're going to be in their fullness of Christ. See, but giving our life away to love, to serve, to bless the other person is where we find joy. Jesus says that when you lose your life, then you find it. Oh, Amen. we're, we're going to get into this over the course of the next six weeks, but you're going to have to give Jesus an account of your wife. Now, verse 27 implies that that someday when you stand before the throne of God, you are going to have to give an account for the way that you loved and shepherded your wife. You're going to have to present her back to God. And, And when you give her back, she ought to look like more like Christ than she did than when you got her. Now, for some of you, this work is happening in spite of you. Right? Bless your wife because no matter how poor you are at leading her and shepherding her and laying your life down for her, she's still set on Jesus and she's, she's wanting to become more Christ-like herself. But if you are married, if you're a husband, if you want to get married, this is the call on your life to take part in this work that God is doing. It's your responsibility to her and to God. That's the power of Christian marriage. See, this is why marriage is so powerful and transformative. It's not about you. It's about the other person. It's about what God's doing. And before we even get to the particulars of marriage, we have to understand that marriage is about God. 
Now, the secret to marriage, the secret to having a marriage that, that points to the transformative work that God is doing, that points to the new heaven, new earth, that points to the new creation where everything looks like Jesus. The secret to marriage is to kill your self-centeredness. And the way that you kill your self-centeredness is by mutual submission to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is verse 21 of chapter 5. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now in marriage, self-centeredness is always the root issue of the problems that you experience in your marriage. Almost every single marital issue can be traced back down to some sort of form of, of self-centeredness. It's where you're thinking too highly of you. You're, you're thinking of your needs before you're thinking of someone else's. You have your agenda, your expectations. It becomes me, 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 me. And if two people are in a marriage and they're both saying me, 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 it's no wonder why marriage is so hard. It's no wonder why marriages can be unhappy and joyless and, and stagnant and lonely. I think in this scenario, it, marriage is better off being called me-ridge. That's cheesy. But th it's about me. <laughs> that we build marriage on this idea that it's, it's about self-fulfillment. And, and if you base your idea of marriage on self-fulfillment, what, what it takes in order to kind of carry out that vision is a non-existent spouse. If you're saying, I want a person who can fill all of my needs, you're saying that you need a person who never thinks about themselves. You're saying a person that's completely invested in what you want, what you do. It's either a person who has low maintenance or no maintenance. A person who can give, give, give without expecting anything in return from you. And if your version of marriage indulges your self-centeredness, then you're asking too much from your spouse. That's a weight your spouse cannot bear. Now, but... If a couple submits to one another out of reverence for Christ, this profoundly changes the dynamics of marriage. It means that there are two people saying to one another, probably imperfectly, I know for fact it's going to be imperfectly, they're going to be saying to another, you first, in light of what Christ has done. Marriage only works to the degree that approximates the pattern of God's self-giving love. And when a person comes to Christ, they're immediately confronted with two realities about themselves. The first reality is that you are worse than you thought. That we are incapable of living up to God's standards. That it's impossible to love God with our heart, with our head, with our mind, with our strength, let alone our neighbor. We're faced with this reality that we are sinful people and at the, the core of our sinfulness is this self-centeredness that's propelling it. This idea that of me over God, me over neighbor, 
And this happens in thought and word and in deed. We are just to the core of ourselves selfish people. It's very rare that we can even see beyond ourselves. But the second thing that the gospel shows us is that in spite of our sin and self-centeredness, God loves us anyway. Now, the, the kind of love that God has for us isn't like a sweep it under the rug and pretend like we're all cool sort of love. It's a love that looks in the face of our sinfulness, of our self-centered ways. And God says, I love you so much that I want to cleanse you. I want to purify you. I want to renew you in a way that peels away this self-centeredness. And the only way that can happen, the only way that self-centeredness can be defeated is by means of self-sacrifice. And God shows us this in the gospel where Jesus comes and he selflessly lays down his life for us. See, the gospel frees us to acknowledge that we are worse than we thought, yet more loved than we could dare to dream. And knowing this frees us from self-centeredness because now I know that Jesus, who is selfless, is looking out for me. That I don't have to look out for myself because Jesus is already looking after my needs. Because Jesus looks at us and he says, I put you first. I went to the cross. Like Jesus could have, he could have jumped off the cross if he wanted to. But Jesus said, I'm sticking this out to meet your needs, to show you I'm laying my life down for you. And we see in the gospel how Jesus sets the precedent for passion and commitment. Jesus is not indifferent toward his spouse, his, the, the bride that is going to be his church. Jesus is filled with affections for her. And with that passion comes a commitment that no matter what, he is there, he is committed. And so we see the same template in marriage that we can have a passion for the other while also having commitment. Now, when a couple believes the gospel, something beautiful happens. They're saying, because Jesus has laid down his life for me, I'm going to lay down my life for you. I'm going to say, you first. Marriages thrive when both people treat their own self-centeredness as the biggest problem, the biggest threat in their marriage. It's not a matter of, of pointing fingers and saying, you know, if, if you could just get this right, then our marriage will be better, right? A gospel-centered person, someone who understands the gospel, is gonna say, the biggest problem with our marriage is not you, it's my self-centeredness. This self-centeredness has to be dealt with. And as we come to the Lord's table today, catch a vision of Jesus' body being broken, that his blood was shed for us. We see how Christ laid down his life for us, to love us with passion and commitment. And once we understand, once we have received that profound love, 
This transforms us to be self-sacrificing people. Marriage isn't about you. Marriage is about what God is doing in order to transform you, in order to transform marriage, God had to send his son. And it's by his sacrifice that we gain a new perspective. It's by his sacrifice we see what God is doing. Father, we, we thank you for the way that you love us with passion and with commitment that Jesus was committed to us even to the point of death that as he felt the weight of our sin bearing down on him, he, he gladly endured for the joy that was set before him, he endured for us. Father, I pray that as we see Christ's sacrifice, as we see him laying down his life for his bride, would you help us as your people to do the same with our spouse, out of mutual submission, out of reverence for Christ. Would you shape our marriages, not to be about us, not about our own wants and our own needs, our own desires, but about Christ, about your glory, about your purpose, about your mission and renewing all things. And we pray this in Jesus' name.